Our scripture lesson this morning is taken from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 65, beginning with verse 17. Listen, will you, word of God, as it's proclaimed through these words of the prophet Isaiah. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad. Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who die, or one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Holy wisdom, holy word. So for those of you who have met my granddaughter, Berkeley, she's here for a visit this week, and we are so thrilled to have her. And uh, we're on a musical marathon. We've been going to musicals, and we're going to see three of them this week because that's a special interest of Berkeley. And I think I'm going to go over here to this microphone and turn it on. I'm going to turn off my other one because it's going to drive me nuts. Cry uncle. Okay, how we doing? All right, good. Thanks. <laughs> so, um, when Berkeley was younger, she came and visited us often in Dallas uh, with her parents. And Jack and I are always thrilled when the grandkids come and visit. They're all different. They're all, you know, have their own personalities and. Um, we just adore Berkeley. She is a total sweetheart, and she can be a bit of a rascal. <laughs> I told her I was going to say that. She has this particular kind of spunk, which I just love, and uh, I've done my best to nurture the rascal in her. I think it's important. When she was three years old, Jack and I took her to the Arboretum 
And uh, at the time, they had this little old-fashioned village of little homes, and she would run around in the different little dwellings exploring. And when she grew tired of that, then we began to walk through the gardens, and we came upon this cool stream in this patio area at the Arboretum. There was a sign by the water that said, no climbing on the rocks or wading in the water. Something like that. I glanced at it and I thought to myself, it's 95 degrees out here. Really? No wading in the water? No putting your feet in the water? But wouldn't that feel great? I'm sure the sign was really just a suggestion anyway. So I led Berkeley over to the large rocks at the water's edge, and Jack pointed to the sign. And I said, she can't read the sign. <laughs> and Jack said, she might fall. And I helped her take her little shoes off. And Jack said, don't let her fall. And we sat down by the water, and we dipped our toes into the cool water, and she giggled, and I giggled, and Jack took a picture. <laughs> so here's the thing. Our behavior can't always be driven by the signs we see right in front of us. Sometimes it's more important to ignore the signs and behave according to an alternative reality, a reality that is as compelling as a cool stream on a hot day. Biblically, it was the prophets who provided the alternative reality for God's people. They would read the signs around them. They would critique the reality those signs pointed to. And then they would provide an alternative vision for God's people. Usually they did this with word pictures or embodying it somehow in active resistance, or they would use poetry that was just beautiful and compelling and captivating. I don't think anyone would argue with the idea that the signs all around us right now are polarizing in just about every way. We are deeply divided as a Methodist church. We are deeply divided in our politics. It seems that the public narrative emphasizes division and practices othering, which is racist and totally antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we proclaim that Christ has broken down all the walls that divide us. I've been rereading a book by Ginger Sorelli Gaines, pastor of Foundry in Washington, D.C. It's called Sacred Resistance, a Practical Guide to Christian Witness and Dissent. She leads a church that is deeply rooted in the Methodist tradition of personal piety combined with social justice. Foundry Church is known for its resistance to policies that are contradictory to the gospel of reconciliation, inclusion, and love. Her thesis in this book is that in this time of crisis, crisis that we experience politically, environmentally, relationally, 
spiritually. Our calling as Christians is to resist all that is not of God. In fact, resistance is part of our identity. It's not something we do. It's who we are as Christians. We cultivate resistance when we claim our true citizenship in the kingdom of God. So resistance, you see, is a deeply countercultural act, and it's grounded in the wisdom and way of Christ. Christian communities, then, are called to give a witness of dissent. She calls this sacred resistance. A community that practices sacred resistance has four attributes. The first is a long and available memory. It's the understanding that as people of faith, we are a particular people, and we have a peculiar history, a history that tells us over and over again that abundant life is found in self-giving, unconditional love, and that God is always working towards wholeness for God's creation, all of God's creation. Number two, a community of resistance has an expressed sense of pain. What that means is that we name the pain. We name the pain that's caused by all that is not of God. And we also have a certain humility about our human limitations with regard to addressing that pain. We know we have to rely on God. Number three, we have an active practice of hope. And this is important. This is the ministry of imagination. This is the prophetic imagination that Walter Brueggemann talks about. Walter Brueggemann talks about the empire. It doesn't really matter which empire we're talking about. We could be talking about the Babylonian Empire. We could be talking about the Roman Empire. We could be talking about the Trumpian Empire. The empire always wants to control the narrative and keep us stuck. But because we are people of faith, we have a prophetic imagination that sees a different future, and we move towards that future. Fourthly, a community of sacred resistance has an effective mode of discourse. You see, when we see that alternative vision, when we use our imagination given to us by God to see that alternative vision, we act on it through our speaking, through our living, through our decisions. We act out the gospel in concrete ways and ways particularly that energize others to act with us, to resist the death-dealing ways of the empire. When our ancient ancestors returned to Jerusalem after 50 years in exile, they were faced with a city destroyed, a temple that was in ruins, and it was enough to immobilize them. Not only were the stones of the temple destroyed, but the community was fractured with infighting and economic ruin. 
the signs of the time led them to despair. Fortunately, there were a few prophetic rascals that would have none of it, that refused to abide by the signs of the time, the signs of destruction that were right in front of them. The post-exilic prophet Isaiah chose to ignore the signs. He brought a word of hope to those standing at the gates of Jerusalem in 538 BCE. Destruction was all they could see, and this is what Isaiah says. No, this is what God says through Isaiah. For I'm about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, really. No more shall there be a sound of weeping. No more shall there be an infant that lives but a few days or an old person that does not live out a lifetime. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In other words, justice will accompany the peace that reigns. And peace will extend even to the animal kingdom where the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Justice, peace, wholeness. The metaphor and poetry of Isaiah are compelling. Doesn't it paint a picture for you? Brueggemann says that what the people in power always discover is that you cannot finally silence the poets. We know this to be true, don't we, Patty Harvey? <laughs> Bree Newsom is one such poet, artist, musician. In 2015, she climbed the flagpole that stood right in the front of the Capitol building in South Carolina, and she lowered the Confederate flag. That flag was originally hoisted there in 1961 as a statement against the Civil Rights Movement. Can you imagine 2015? The Confederate flag, the stars and bars as they call it, was and still is a primary sign of the times. But Bree Newsom chose to practice sacred resistance. She was compelled to act after the Charleston massacre of nine people, all slaughtered during a church Bible study, all slaughtered in the name of white supremacy. As she watched the funeral of Reverend Clementa Pinckney, she noticed that both the American flag and the flag of South Carolina were flown at half-mast, while the Confederate flag remained untouched. She remembered the stars and bars bumper sticker she saw on Dylan Roof's car and all over his website, and she refused 
to accept the premise that white supremacy reigns supreme, untouchable, invincible. So she scaled the 30-foot flagpole in front of the State House and removed the stars and bars. And as the police shouted at her from the ground, she shouted back. She declared these words, you come against me with hatred and oppression. I come against you in the name of God. This flag comes down today. And as they arrested her, she repeated the words of Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? See, Bree's intention was to create a new image, a new symbol. And so now this iconic picture of her on the pole, flag in hand, has become a touchstone of empowerment for disenfranchised people all around the world as a witness of resistance against all that is not of God, she imagined a new heaven and a new earth in which racism does not exist. She acted out of her gospel understanding, and her witness gained the attention of the world in ways that still energize others to resist the evil of racism. Our prophetic role in the church is to judge present reality. But that's not all. We also have to embrace God's vision for the future, God's vision of hope. Diana Butler Bass wrote an opinion piece for CNN this week called The God of Love Had a Really Bad Week. Certainly describes what I felt, and I have a feeling that most of you reacted in the same way to the incessant racist rhetoric that has come across our phones and our airwaves and our TVs and our computers. It's outrageous that this brand of white nationalism is alive and well in our country. It has been fully revealed, and it lives in the White House. I dare say that it is also shocking that none of us are shocked by this. It's hard to imagine that none of us are shocked by this. It's hard to imagine anything that is more antithetical to the reign of God than this thinly disguised hatred for God's brown and black-skinned children or Muslim children. We are called to be a community of sacred resistance. We are compelled to resist the death-dealing ways of the empire, the ways that are not of God, We do that by rehearsing our peculiar, particular history of people as faith, and we rehearse it on Sunday mornings over and over again 
And our history tells us that our God is a God of self-giving love, unconditional love. Our God is a God of justice and compassion. And we will engage in active lamenting when we see hatred and violence in the world. We will not allow these things to be normalized. We will not be immobilized by the constant barrage of negativity and division. Like Isaiah, we will look upon the destruction that such hatred causes, and we will be reminded of God's promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And our faithful imagination will allow us to glimpse this new reality every time we reach across all that divides us, every time we act in accordance with the gospel of love. Perhaps we will empower an eagle scholar over in the Vickery Meadow neighborhood so they can begin to see a new reality for themselves through their college readiness program. Perhaps we will make our voices heard in the public square in really creative ways. We are called to live our lives in ways that energize others to resist all that is not of God so that others can live into their full potential. And we can help usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And we will remember the words of Walter Brueggemann, the most subversive element of any resistance movement is hope. Hope. Do you hear that? We are purveyors of hope. That is a high calling especially in times like this. May it be so. Amen. Amen.